Good morning. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, as we uh, start back in our series this week, I was thinking of, as I was working on this week, I kept uh, a couple conversations kept coming to mind that I had just the last couple of weeks, centering God's timing on the, on the conversations he brings into your life and the things that you talk about. And then you start to go to his word and you start to study and these connections start to be made. And uh, I was thinking of a conversation I had with a friend the other day, a neighbor. And uh, we were standing outside and we were talking about just different things. And uh, this friend started to tell me about a book they were reading, and they were talking about, uh, essentially it was a self-help book, you know, positive thinking, how to, how to think more positively, how, to, uh, how that works out in your life, how to be nicer to the people you're around with. But as we started to have these conversations, I started to ask some, uh, some pretty directed questions, not, not pushing too hard, but just asking about the motivation. Why, why do you want to read this book? You know, what are you trying to get out of it? Uh, what's, what are you hoping to gain from it? Those kind of questions. And what started to unfold and what started to come out was, um, it was, it was things like, uh, I'm going to do this and I'm reading this because hopefully then I'll be nicer to other people and it'll make me feel better. It'll make me feel better about myself. And, uh, and it was, you know, kind of said in several different ways, but essentially that's what it came, kept coming back to. As I thought about it, what they were essentially saying is, is this is a way as I read this and I look for different things to do, it's a way that I can justify my existence. Self-justification. I want to feel better about myself. I want to, uh, to, to feel better about the way I treat people and different things. And um, that's often the case. We do a lot of things that way and we start to look for ways to kind of justify what we're doing and to make us feel better. So that was one conversation. Then not it was either the next day or two days later. I can't remember exactly. I was I was having lunch. Uh, with a friend and we started to talk about different things and and he and I have a more open relationship to talk about God and, and what that looks like and, and the questions he was asking and struggling with were, were essentially uh, he I don't remember exactly how I phrased it but it was something to the effect of I'm trying really hard hanging out with good people I'm trying to do the right things and then uh, he kept he kept saying it in third person my friend's doing this which often means I'm doing this, but uh, that, that was kind of what was said. But then it was, um, so am I okay? Am I okay with God? That was, that was kind of what he was saying. If, if I do this and I do this thing this way and in this way, am, am I good? And, and really what kind of hit me as I was reflecting on those two different conversations, both friends were saying the same thing just in different ways. They're looking for ways to do certain things, to act certain ways, to justify themselves to make, make them feel better about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And as I started to think about that and what we're talking about today, that, that feeling, that need of, of self-justification, what do I do to feel better about myself, I think it stems from a misunderstanding of who God is and the way we relate to him. And the passage we're going to look at this morning, I think a lot of it even stems within the church. We start to see some of these misunderstandings is, is from what we're talking about this morning. And what we're talking about this morning is we're up to Exodus chapter 20 when God gives the law, the Ten Commandments. And I think what happens a lot of times, even within the church, is we have misconceptions about Ten Commandments and the way we're supposed to look at them and how we're supposed to come to them. I think a lot of that comes from... Uh, missing connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they go together and how it's all God's plan unfolding. And sometimes I think it gets muddled in our mind. I remember, uh, I've, I've heard that, I think I mentioned it last week, I've heard it said a lot, God of the Old Testament is the God of law, God of the New Testament is God of grace, and it's like he's different, and somehow he's changed, and with Jesus it's different. And, and we miss that continuity of all of Scripture, and it leads to some of these mis. Uh, perceptions and these misunderstandings of, of how we do that. And it leads to both my friends, what they're asking. We try to justify ourselves by what we're doing. And I think it's a basis comes 
in this misunderstanding. So today, as we step back into our series, if you've been with us, maybe you've uh, forgotten or you're visiting today. We're walking through a series just called The Story, the big idea of Scripture. We're starting at the beginning and we're walking through and we're looking at how God's plan unfolds and what he's doing. And just the, the one minute nutshell of how we've gotten to where we are is God creates man and he makes him in his image to be his image bearer, to glorify him. That is to reflect who he is. We're the, uh, the crown of his creation, the only thing that's made in his image. So we have a special place in God's creation as people. And he puts us there. And then what we immediately do in, in Genesis 3 is we turn our backs on God. We decide not to trust him. And we mess that up. But immediately there in Genesis 3, God makes a promise that I'm going to fix this. I'm going to redeem creation. I'm going to bring you back. And what we see from that point on is this unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And that's what we've been looking at each week. And we saw that promise there in Genesis 3, and then we picked it up in Genesis 12, as, as God clarifies it to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to give you these four things, uh, a great number of people. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bless the world through your seed, which is ultimately Jesus. And then what we've been doing is we call it, and a good way to remember this from that point on, is, is the channel of salvation, the way God is bringing about this plan. And what we've seen is from that time from Abraham up to where we are now with Moses, it's been about 700 years and all that's happened is now God has given a great number of descendants to Abraham, but they don't have a land. The people don't are not a great nation. Uh, they haven't he hasn't blessed the world through his seed yet. And all these things are still future. But as we start to saw or we started to see last week, um, that plan starts to come to fruition. God calls Moses and he says, I know my people are in slavery in Egypt and I want you to bring them out. And he brings them out. God does this miraculously. We saw that last week in the Passover. And God brings them out. And then what happens is he takes them out to the, to the desert. And then he gives them his law. And that's what we're looking at today. And he starts to make them into his people. This nation that he's, he's going to use. And he starts to clarify how they relate to him and what that looks like. And that's where we are today. So what we're going to do for our text this morning is we're going to look at the end of Exodus 14. In the beginning of chapter 15 and then Exodus 20. And the reason I'm doing it that way is, is that 14 and 15 is kind of a summary statement of where we are. And then we'll go to Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, just for your information, on the back of your bulletin, both of those passages are printed right there together. So if you want to look on there, you don't have to flip back and forth. It's a little easier to follow where we are. But I'm going to read both of those passages and then we'll jump in to look at uh, what God has for us in that. So let's start in Exodus Chapter 14, verse 30, and it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And then in Exodus 15, the people sing a song led by Moses, and it says this, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. And then we're going to jump ahead to Exodus 20. So right after this, God tells Moses to gather the people around the mountain. They're going to hear him speak as he gives his law. So you imagine there's, there's two to three million people there gathered to hear this. And God audibly speaks from the mountain. And this is what they hear in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain for the Lord will not for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God on it. You shall do you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at these uh, two passages together. Dear Lord, we, uh, we pray that uh, you'd be in this place this morning moving freely, that your spirit would uh, come and uh, just open our ears to hear your word, that you would open our minds to understand it, that you would apply it to our hearts, that we would see clearly uh, what you have for us in this time. We uh, just confess this morning with without your spirit moving and doing so for us, that this would be a waste of time, that we need you to be moving and applying and doing it for us. And uh, we thank you that you, you promised to be here and that you are active and living. We pray that uh, this morning that our time in your word would be uh, pleasing to you. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we begin to look at that, this, this idea of the unfolding and here he is making his people and he's telling them these things. There's three ways I want to look at the, new, the uh, Ten Commandments. And we're not going to look at them individually. We're going to kind of look at it as a whole of what God's doing and how he's working here. We've been doing that a lot in this series. There's so much great that we could spend lots of time in each one of these. But we're doing kind of big idea overview. So I want to look at it this way. I'm going to ask three questions of it. First, when? When was the law given? Second, why did God give it? And then third, how are we to see it today? So we've got when, why, and how. All right. So the first being, when did God give it? And that may seem like a kind of a strange question, but I want you to see this is, this is pretty important on how we see the, the whole of the Old Testament law and why God gave it and what he was doing. So look again with me just at the end of verse 31 in uh, chapter 14. And it says there just the, the second half of that verse. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. That's 1431. And then if you look at 15 too, it says, as the people sang together, they confessed and they said, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. And then finally, look again with me just at the beginning of chapter 20, what God says, the very first thing he says before he gives, he speaks the Ten Commandments and he says this, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So I read those three verses to you again, and I hope you see where we're going and what we're talking about when we say the win, the win of uh, God giving the law to the people. And what we're getting at is what we see 
through Exodus and what we see here in these passages leading up is, is the win is God saves the people out of Exodus first. Right? The win of the law is God goes down and he, he rescues them of no doing of their own. He miraculously works for them and he takes them out and he brings them out and then he gives them the law. And this is so important for us to see that God saves them through his grace before he gives them his law. He doesn't come down when, that, when they cry out and he speaks to Moses the first time. He doesn't say to Moses, okay, Moses, here's the Ten Commandments. Take it to the people and if they do that fairly well, then I'll come back and save them. He doesn't do that. He says, I hear you and I'm working and I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to save you. And he pulls them out and he brings them out by his grace and then he gives them the law. And this is so important that we see that. We see in, in, verse, uh, or in uh, chapter 14 there where it says, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. Right? We see right there that they have faith in who God is and what he's doing. We say, see the same thing in 15 when it says he's become our salvation. This is my God and I will praise him again. You have faith. You see it at the beginning. You actually see it in the middle of 19. We didn't look at that one, but you see it all the way through all these times. These, these summary statements right before we get to the giving of the law that the people are putting their faith in God and what he's done and who he is. And so when we talk about the win, the win is God saves and then he gives his law. Now, this pattern, really, uh, this idea really shouldn't be too far. Maybe you haven't thought about this before. Maybe you hadn't thought about how he, how he works here and when he's giving it. But this is the pattern that's all through Scripture. God's grace uh, immediately steps in. We saw it with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden, God says, you're not supposed to eat from this tree. You trust me. You do this. And they immediately decide not to. They turn from him. And then what we see is God stepping in and saying, I'm going to save you. Right? He, t- he turns to Eve and he tells her right away, through your seed, I'm going to bring the Savior that's going to save the world. He clothes them. Right? We saw at the end of Genesis 3, he puts clothes on them to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. And, and again, we don't see God saying to Adam and Eve, okay, now you need to do these things and then I'll get back to you and I'll help you out with your problem. He immediately makes the promise and steps in. We see the same thing with Abraham. He comes down to Abraham, he tells him, he gives him this promise of what I'm going to do and then he tells him to go. We see in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, uh, he tells him this promise and it says, Abraham believed God. That is, he put faith in who God is and what he's doing. And God counted it to him as righteousness. So we see this all the way through the Old Testament. It's always God acting, people responding in faith. And then he gives the, uh, the law here. So it's so important that we get this, that we get this picture that God's moving, that he gives this sign in the Exodus, he shows them who he is and who his, what his power is. Remember, we saw last week, if you were here with us, when we looked at the Passover, God kept saying, I'm going to do these things and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and I'm going to work this way so that you see who I am. So that you see who I am. And he says, so Egypt will see who I am. And so they all, and he's showing them clearly who he is and how he's working before he gives the law. So the importance of this first part that I want us to see, and this is so important that we get this, is the win is that God graciously saves them and then he gives them his law. He doesn't respond to their obedience and then he saves them. It's the opposite. And that's the way God works with us. So when we start to consider that, even here at the beginning, that that's the order in which God does it. Uh, so why that leads us to the second part. Why did he give us the law? Right? If it's if it's not that, if it's not to save us in response to what we do, why did he give us the law? And that's really the first part I want to start with when we say why. I want us to consider what it's not first. Right. I want to make sure that we're so clear on what it's not, because this misperception, that's the same thing. Both my friends were talking about this past week. 
their misconception of who God is and the way he relates to us. So we need to make sure we understand what it's not. God's giving of the law is never, ever the way in which we earn our salvation. That was never the, the plan. It was never, I'm going to give you the law and now you do this to the point that you earn your salvation. That was never what it is. And we need to understand that so clearly to begin with. You know, Paul says it so crystal clear in Romans chapter 9. He gets to the end of chapter 9 and he's been dealing with how God has dealt with the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, and how he's dealt with the Jews. And he's going back and forth and he gets to the end and he says this in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. So what he says is they didn't pursue the righteousness because they didn't even have the law. They didn't even know about it, but they've attained righteousness through faith. Right. So he's saying the Gentiles have done this. The non-Jews have done this. And then he turns to the Jewish uh, to Israel and he says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Right. So he says God gave the law to Israel and so many of them took it so seriously and they were striving and they were trying to do it so well. And he says, but yet they never attained it. Right. And then Paul answers. He says the next thing he says, why? He asks a rhetorical question, as Paul often does. And he says, why? And he says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And what Paul says is you're not saved by your works. And that was never God's plan. So the first part we have to get is what he's not doing with giving the law. The law is not there to say, okay, now you do these 10 things and you do them really well and you'll be good. You'll be saved. You'll justify yourself. That's what he's saying. That is not it. And that's what Paul so clearly says in Romans 9, that that's not what God's doing. And if we miss that, we miss such a huge point of what God is doing with the law. So we need to get what it's not first. It's also not to earn favor with God. It's never meant to be what the Pharisees turn it into in Jesus's day. Right. They turn it into all these rules and all these things and what they're doing so that they can make themselves feel good about themselves and they can look down on other people and they can hold it over them and they can make it all about these rules. We're trying to attain something because when that happens and that's what happened with the Pharisees, they've made it all into rules and I attain it by doing it. So then I can look down on all the people that aren't doing it as well as I am. And that was never the goal. That was never why God gave the law. And that's not what it is. You know, Jesus had extremely, uh, he was pretty harsh, pretty straightforward. Maybe it's the way to say it when people mistook it that way. And they would start to do that. He'd start to say things like in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Pretty harsh words. Jesus doesn't mix his message at all when he talks about the way we abuse the law. He's pretty straightforward. And what he was saying is they were trying to do it to attain their salvation. They were trying to do it to say, look at how good I am. And he says, no, 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 you've totally missed it. It's not that. So as we start, I want us to be clear on what it's not. And it's not God gave the law so we could earn our salvation. That's never what it was. So that leads us to what is it? Why did he give us the law then? Well, we see, and this flows out of why it's important. I say we see the win. 
that he saves them first and then he gives them the law. The law was first and foremost, it was always there to be an outworking of true faith. And that's a big, big difference when you start to think about what that means. That the only way of ever pleasing God is through faith in what he's doing and who he is and how he's acting. And so he does this first, setting it up, showing them that you trusted me and who I am. And now here's how you can follow me. And, and if we get that wrong, we totally miss it. Uh, I was trying to think of a, a good example of this. And um, I think about it, uh, and it's not perfect, but oftentimes you think in terms of when God gives us laws or uh, wants us to obey him or things that immediately go to with your children, with the way you or, or I do with my kids and the way I uh, interact with them. We have we have a rule in our house. Our boys love, love, love to ride their bikes now. They're all into riding the bikes and they ride them around the cul-de-sac every single day. They were doing it yesterday, but they have to wear their helmets. That's the rule in the house. And and so there's two ways that they can come to that. When I say I want you to wear your helmet, they know they're not allowed to ride their bikes, so they have to wear their helmets to ride their bikes. So they can look at it as the law is they're trying to get something out of it, right? Here's our rule. So I will wear my helmet so that you will let me ride my bike, right? And, and most of the time, that's probably why they're wearing their helmets. If we're, if we're completely honest, that's probably what's happening. They're going, okay, well, I have to wear it because he said so, and I want to ride my bike. But when we do that, we're using the law to get something, right? We're manipulating in a way, right? They're, they're not wearing their helmets because they go, Dad, you know better than I do, and I just trust you. As much as I would like to think that's the case, I know that's not the case. They're not just saying, oh, I just trust you so much, so I will wear my helmet. They're doing it because they have to. They want to get something out of it. And when we make the law be that we're trying to earn our way before God, that's what we're doing. In a lot of ways, we're, manip- we're trying to manipulate God. I'm going to do this so that you love me. So that I can show you how good I am and you go, oh, yeah, well, God accepts me now because I'm doing the best I can. And that's not what the law ever was. Right. The, the, if you use my example all the way through uh, doing it out of faithful obedience and just wanting to offer back would be, well, I know that you trust me and I know that you love me and I know, Dad, that you take care of me. So I'm, I don't really get why I need to wear my helmet, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to do it. You see the difference of the way that we come to that. It's the same thing. When we use the law as I'm trying to manipulate God to say, I'm doing pretty good. Look here, God, now that you love me, you see how heartbreaking that is to God. I use the, t- the uh, example with my children because if I think about that, if I thought my kids were going, well, I'll wear my helmet, Dad, so that you love me, how heartbreaking that would be. Say, no, 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 I love you whether you wear your helmet or not. I want you to wear your helmet so you don't bust your head open but I'm going to love you whether you wear it or not. You see the difference. And it's the same thing to God when we go, well, I'm going to earn your love by keeping your commandments. I'm going to earn it. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand. I love you already. Right? That's why the win is so important. I've already saved you. I've already taken you out of Egypt. I've already showed you the way I rescue you, what I'm doing for you. Now I'm giving these to you so that you can follow, you can live your life the best way that I've designed it. It's not so that you can earn your way before me. And so when we so when we miss that, it really turns into we're trying to manipulate God and he doesn't want that. See, what he what he wants is us born out of faith of who he is, that we're going to trust him and do these things that he tells us because we believe he has our best interest at heart and that he knows how this life works better. That's what his ten commandments. That's what his commandments are. He gives us these things and then says, if you follow these things, will go so much better for you. And you see the difference there. And sometimes that can be subtle. We can go, we can miss that so easily and we can slip into that. I've got to do that so I earn his favor. And that's not what it is. That's not what it is at all. 
He wants you to obey him and trust him because things will go better. Your life will be more joyful. You'll have less problems. All these things that he wants to give you good gifts. So he gives you this and he wants you to respond in faith, not in earning. And when we start to get that, it changes the way that looks. You may kind of ask that question if you think about it. What does it look like when we really begin to see it the way he wants us to, that we're responding out of faith of who he is and obedience because we trust him, not because we're trying to earn. And what I think the picture you get through scripture is suddenly it becomes I'm offering back what he's already done for me. I realize how much he loves me. So now I want to love others in the same way that he's loved me. Right. That's why Jesus says when they, when there's asked about the law and they, they say to him, well, what's the greatest commandment? Right? They come and they're always trying to stump him and ask him all these questions. And he says, well, the greatest commandment is you love the Lord, your God, with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, and the second one is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Right? When we start to get that God gives us these and he wants us to respond in faith, not trying to earn, what it does is it frees us up to love others. When you think about why that is for just a second. See, when we're trying to earn like the Pharisees were, I'm trying to earn my worth before God. It's like a competition. Right. I'm I'm seeing I'm always comparing myself to others. I see how good I'm doing versus how good they're doing. And it's and it becomes like this competition. Whereas when we realize that we're completely and totally loved by God, completely by his grace, it frees us to love others. There's no more looking down and comparing and all those things. It should totally do away with that. And so that's why you get this picture in scripture that that uh, you're overflowing with love when we really respond to God's commandments the way he told us. Uh, a good example in First Corinthians 13. You've probably heard that. It's real famous. Uh, you hear it at weddings all the time. The love passage and all the things that love is. But I want you to think about what Paul says right at the very beginning. He says in First Corinthians 13, verse 1, he says, If I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. And what Paul's talking about is if I get to where I know the Bible really, really well, and I've got all the things and I've got my systematic theology lined up and I've got all these things. And it's just so that I'm trying to attain something to say, look at how much I know. And it's not pouring out in love through faith. And I've got nothing. It's a waste of time. If it's all just a, a duty or I'm trying to earn something before God and it's not an overflow of what he's done for me, we're totally missing it. And that's what Paul starts to say in that first Corinthians passage and he goes on to say if i give away all that i have and i delivered my body up to be burned but i have not love i gain nothing right so if i give away everything and i do lots of charity work and i end up being martyred for my faith and all these things but i was doing it trying to earn something with god i've totally missed what he's after because he wants our heart he wants it to be an overflow a love for him not in works trying to earn his attentions and affections and justify ourselves so you see how that's so important see our obedience is supposed to be born out of faith which frees us to love others the way god loves us right the way he's first loved us not worried about being compared with others because we've already fully been accepted by god in christ and what he's done for us and that changes the way we com completely changes the way we look at the law it, it no longer becomes self-justification. What am I trying to do and how am I trying to earn? And it's something totally different now. And it changes it. So when we think about that, that's the, that's the uh, why he gives it. So we can respond in obedience and in, in trusting and in faith for who he is. 
And it gives us this fullness of joy and he wants what's best for you. So we trust him. I heard it said the other day and I thought this was a really great example of that. It says, it was in one of the commentaries I was reading. I forgot to write down who wrote it. I do that a lot. I write all these notes down and then I go back and I can't figure out who it was that said such a good. Uh, but what, it, what they were saying is uh, when you're secure in who God is, you're really coming to him in faith. It said you don't steal because you're uh, sure of your future and how God is going to provide for you. You see how those are linked. When we're really coming to him in faith, what we're saying is I don't need to steal because I know he's going to take care of me. And that's trusting him. You're not doing it. You don't go, I'm not going to steal because if I do, then God will strike me down and he won't love me anymore. No, you say, I trust him. You see how that's different. It's a different way of looking at it. It's a different way of you looking at his commandments and what he's done for us. It's a way for us to trust him, the outworking of our faith and who he is. So God gives this to Israel. And when we think about how he does this and how he was showing them, he's showing them from the very beginning with the law. I save you and I bring you out. Now, trust me. And this is what it looks like. So the question becomes, how's it for us today? We're on this side of the cross, on this side of what Christ has done for us. But I tell you, the difference is or the way we're supposed to look at it, how we're supposed to look at it today. We're supposed to look at it the same way, just as God showed them by pulling them out of Egypt and saving them by his grace and then giving his law. So it's the same with us. He showed us he's proved how much he loves us in Christ by entering into this world and living the life that we never could live and doing it for us and then giving us all the benefits by free grace. And then he says, you love me in response to what I've done for you. Right. That's what Jesus said over and over. They'll know my disciples by the way they love one another. Or he says it another time and a little different, but almost the same thing. If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? Jesus doesn't say, keep my commandments and then I'll love you. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It begins with his grace and what he's done for us. And then the outworking of that is our faith in what he said and trusting what he's done. So when we think about how are we supposed to see it, it's got to start that way. It's, it's through faith by what he's done for us. It's in response to how he's already saved us, not the other way around. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, he says, but God shows his love for us while we were sinners. Christ died for us, right? It doesn't say that when we got our things together, Christ then died for us. It says, no, while you were sinners in complete rejection of him, he died for you. And then in verse 11, it says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Because he saved us, then we rejoice in who he is and we trust him. You see that? It's got to be through faith that you begin to try to do these things. The other way, it'll just crush you. Right? The other way, it turns Jesus into self-help Jesus. You follow his example and go, oh, I'll try to do it as well as I can, which we can't do and it will crush you. It'll just be an, it's the hamster running on the, the uh, wheel. You'll just keep going and you'll never get there. And so that's, that's what, the way we're supposed to see it. So then how do we look at the law today? How does that end up with us? And I'd say when we really get that Christ has saved us by no doing in our own, and it's through faith that we do it, that we try to do anything, then it lets us see the law the way we read in Psalms this morning. It, we can then say, like they say in Psalms 1, delight, my delight is in the Lord and on his laws. I meditate day and night. Or blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. 
In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all the riches. I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. See, when it becomes an outworking of trust and faith for him that loves you so much, you can say, I delight in your statutes and in your words and what you're telling me. And I can trust in what you're saying because I know things are going to go well because I already know how much you love me. And it frees you to go, oh, I delight in your word and I delight in your statutes. So it's simple as this. We don't follow God's laws because we want to be accepted by him. We follow him because he's accepted us and we trust he wants what's best for us. And when we get that, it frees us from trying to justify our existence. Oh, I've got to do this so that he'll accept me. No, no, no. He's already accepted you through his grace and what Jesus has done. Now we get to trust him by following what he's told us. So the law becomes a beautiful delight to us. And it's not an oppressive thing that we try to keep trying to justify our existence. But it's a way in which we can trust our Heavenly Father that loves us so much more than we'll ever know. So the Ten Commandments were never this oppressive way we earn our salvation. It was always about God, what he's doing for us and how we can offer that back in faith. We're going to close now with just a time of prayer. You'll, see, you'll notice in your bulletin it says time of confession. Um, I hope as we, as we work through that and we think through this today and as you go, there are so many times, and I'll confess you do, I do this every day with different things, that you slip into that works-based righteousness. If I do this, God will accept me. Or he'll love me a little more if I spend more time in my Bible. Or if I pray a little more, maybe he'll love me a little more. And I just want us to take a moment to just confess that that's not the case. Put that before him. I want to confess that I do that, but I don't want to do that. So it says in our, in our bulletin, just a time of confession. So let's just go to him and pray. And uh, just ask for all those times that we've done that. Just lay those at his feet this morning. So if you would, just bow your heads and pray with me as we, as we finish this morning. Dear Lord, we do confess this morning that uh, so often we see your word uh, we see uh, your laws um, as ways in which we can earn your uh, love. And we, uh, we just lay that at your feet. We confess that uh, we're wrong in doing so, that uh, we should never be coming to you in that way. I pray this morning that we would see more clearly uh, that uh, it's always through your grace, it's always for what you do for us, that you are for us, and that we can trust in that completely and totally because of what you've done on the cross. And we thank you for that. Uh, We do just confess this morning that there's so many times we don't trust you completely. That uh, we get down or we we beat ourselves up because maybe we're not doing as well as we think we should. And uh, I pray that we would just leave that there this morning. That we would leave that at your feet and bask in your grace and what you've done for us. Uh, We do thank you for all you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.